Welcome to The Legal Impact, presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, Laura Canoy. It's unusual for a Supreme Court justice to reach pop culture status, but somehow, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg did just that. Her face still instantly recognizable on t-shirts, bumper stickers, and lawn signs. But today on The Legal Impact, we set aside those images to explore her judicial philosophy. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's long career was the subject of an all-day conference this fall at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law, and it's the focus of a new book, co-edited by two of our professors, Ryan Vaca and Ann Bartow. The book is called The Jurisprudential Legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Professor Vaca is with us now on The Legal Impact, and Professor Vaca, a big welcome. Thanks for having me, Laura. Well, at that all-day conference that you organized, there's one word that kept coming up over and over again, and that's equality. So how did Justice Ginsburg seek to expand equality? So Justice Ginsburg's work with equality really stems from her work as a lawyer and a law professor on gender equality, as well as her, her personal experiences growing up and facing discrimination. And she, she very much believed in permitting everyone to define their own path and, and not depriving anyone of that ability based on assumptions about particular groups of people. And she really tried to expand equality, not just for women, but for, for everyone. This was demonstrated through her choice of plaintiffs when she was a litigator, frequently had men as clients to try to push for gender equality. And this is, is really illustrated, you know, her, her push for equality is, is very much illustrated in, in her decisions regarding you know, healthcare, for example, which not only focuses on uh, abortion, which obviously has its own equality-based issues, but also in the context of, you know, family leave laws, you know, making sure that men and women were both able to take self-care leave under the FMLA, or access to contraceptives, which was limited under the Affordable Care Act. And so she, she really focused on equality in those types of cases. Oh, that's interesting. FMLA being the Family and Medical Leave Act. Right, Professor Vaca? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Something else that came up with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, this, this, these words, seeking a more perfect union, seeking to address the history of discrimination. That's something else that seems to, seems to come up a lot with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Professor Vaca. Yeah, so she really wanted to you know, recognize the history of discrimination that existed and to think about that as, we, as, as the government was trying to figure out ways to remediate that past discrimination. And so, you know, she would draw distinctions and say, you know, we shouldn't discriminate based on, you know, your classification as a woman or a man or as a, a white person or a black person or, you know, whatever it may be. But she also acknowledged that because of the history, we shouldn't just ignore that. Because of the history of discrimination that exists, she understood that there were consequences that flowed from that from that discrimination. And she thought it was appropriate to take that into account when trying to figure out ways to either ameliorate the effects of that discrimination or you know, somehow make the groups that were previously discriminated against, make them whole again going forward. And so she took that sort of history into account when making these determinations. 
Why did you think, Professor Vaca, that it was important to focus a book on Justice Ginsburg's jurisprudence? Because there are many other justices with equally long careers that you could have focused on. So why Justice Ginsburg in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. So as a practical matter, we focused on Justice Ginsburg because she had just passed away. And so the the timing made sense. But more importantly, we were we were drawn to writing a book about her and her jurisprudence because although she was really well known as both a a pop culture icon, as you you mentioned in the introduction, and also as the, the chief architect of gender equality jurisprudence, we really felt that there were several areas of the law that, you know, once studied in depth, would paint a more nuanced portrait of the type of jurist that Justice Ginsburg was. And if people only knew about her from kind of media portrayals and her work on gender equality, they were really just seeing a small piece of who she was as a jurist, which encompassed 40 years of her life. And there was sort of much more, uh, we wanted to paint this much richer picture of who she was. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so what are some important subjects where her decisions are less well known? You know, after a after a 40-year career on the bench, it turns out that you know, she wrote a lot of opinions on a wide variety of subject matters. And in our in our book, we tried to identify subject matters where she wrote an appreciable number of opinions, enough so that there was a body of, of opinions to draw meaningful conclusions about her jurisprudence in that area. And so some of the areas that listeners might be surprised to hear about include uh, arbitration, uh, voting rights, criminal procedure, tax, death penalty, uh, employee benefits, bankruptcy, patent law, environmental law. So it really is a wide range. Well, and you'd imagine over a 40-year career that she would touch on some of those subjects. So it makes sense. But it is interesting because you're right, Professor Vaca, when people think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they think about, you know, gender equality and efforts to end historic discrimination. I want to ask about your own chapter in the book, which has to do with one of these lesser known areas. Your chapter is titled, Professor Vaca, Copyright Law, Never Bet Against the House or Senate. So what's the story you're trying to tell there? Yeah, so with with copyright law, the story that we're telling about Justice Ginsburg's jurisprudence was that there was really more to the story than the common perception that she was sort of pro-author or pro-copyright owner. And this, you know, if you look at various you know, sort of legal media covered her opinions in copyright, they would say, you know, oh, she was she was very much in favor of authors, very much in favor of copyright owners. And in st- and when we when we first started looking at her copyright jurisprudence, that seemed to be the case. But instead, what we discovered is we really dove into her opinions. We found that there were really a handful of kind of animating principles that really drove these opinions. And so, for example, we identified concepts such as incrementalism, or intergovernmental deference, or seeking alternatives. These were really what seemed to be driving a lot of the opinions. And so the title of our chapter, as you mentioned, was we were really playing off of her probably most well-known opinion in a case called Eldred versus Ashcroft. And that case involved Congress extending the duration of copyright law from life plus 50 years to life plus 70 years. 
years. And Justice Ginsburg, she wrote the majority opinion for the court and held that this was not prohibited by the Constitution. And in the opinion, she gave quite a bit of deference to Congress to craft copyright policy in ways that might not make much sense. And so this deference appeared in, uh, this deference to Congress appeared in several of her copyright opinions. And so this was sort of a play off of that, that concept. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm so glad you mentioned deference to Congress, because I wanted to ask you, Professor Vaca, how Justice Ginsburg viewed the other two branches of government, the legislative and the executive. This, by the way, came up on last month's episode of The Legal Impact. One of the participants at your conference said, for Justice Ginsburg, it was very important that federal courts not consider themselves the supreme decision makers in government, but that they were coordinated with the legislative and executive branches and that they should constrain political actors, meaning the executive and the legislative, only reluctantly. So how do you see Justice Ginsburg's views here on the, the interplay between these three branches of government? Yeah, that's a great question. So this, this coordinating function between the branches is really a theme that arises in many of the chapters in the book. As I mentioned, it, it arises in copyright law with Justice Ginsburg deferring to Congress, but we also see it in several other areas. And what was going on here is that Justice Ginsburg realized that a properly functioning legal system has balance and that courts by design have limited capabilities. They, they can't really control what information they have before them when they decide cases, right? The, the parties, they, they bring the evidence. If you're an appellate judge or a Supreme Court justice, right, you just get the record that was, that was below you. You can't go out and, you know, subpoena this is to come in who you want to test, who you want to hear from. Congress has that power to do so. And one of the things that she, she realized is that, you know, if courts got too far out in front of the political branches, then there could be backlash from, from citizens and from the political branches themselves, which would destabilize the delicate legal system that we have in place. And so Instead, you know, she really wanted the courts to move slowly, incrementally, so that the court would send a signal to the political branches and sort of nudge them to enact legislation to address the related issues. And so, you know, in short, I think what she saw was she saw the evolution of law as really a dialogue between the courts and the political branches rather than a diatribe, which is something that she specifically mentioned during her Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Oh, it's really interesting. And again, I'll reference listeners to last month's episode with constitutional law professor John Graby, because he addresses this issue as well. So I'm glad that you raised it. You know, you touched on this earlier, Professor Vaca, but I want to ask you more directly, what are some common misconceptions or misunderstandings that you encounter about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's judicial career? So I'd say the biggest misconception about RBG was that she was a very liberal judge who voted based on politics. And so when I, you know, when I talk to conservatives, they, you know, they're very critical of, of Justice Ginsburg, but it's, you know, it's, oh, she's, she's the, you know, far left liberal, and that's why she voted these, this way and that way. And I think that's incorrect. As our book shows, there was, there was much more to her opinions than simple politics. Her opinions demonstrate 
a diverse array of considerations, including you know, bedrock principles about the formation and functioning of our government. You know, for example, separation of powers, federalism, judicial restraint. And you know, I'd like to, to remind people that when, when Justice Ginsburg was first nominated to the Supreme Court by President Clinton, there was a concern by some groups that she wasn't sort of liberal enough for their taste. But President Clinton nominated Justice Ginsburg for this reason. When she was a judge on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and she had served on that court for about 13 years, she had a reputation on that court as a very moderate judge. In fact, some studies showed that she actually voted with her conservative colleagues more frequently than she voted with her uh, liberal colleagues. And so it really wasn't about politics for her. There was much, if you start digging a little deeper, you see that it was really about these kind of core principles about government itself. Okay, that's a fun fact that many people might not know that when RBG was first confirmed, there was some discontent among those who thought she was too moderate. So it just it just shows you how, how perceptions can evolve and change. And I did not know that uh, until I listened in to your conference, Professor Vaca. Speaking of evolution, change, people do, of course, evolve over their careers, their lives. How did Justice Ginsburg evolve or change in terms of her judicial philosophy or her judicial approach? So I, I think it really depends on the subject area. There are some areas like the death penalty, where early on in her career, Justice Ginsburg stuck very close to precedent and she exercised judicial restraint. But over time, she became more critical of, of the practice of the death penalty and she worked with her colleagues to limit its scope, especially as it related to like intellectual disabilities and the role of the jury versus that of the judge. We see kind of a similar evolution in with respect to with respect to arbitration. So we see that when she first joined the Supreme Court, she interpreted the Federal Arbitration Act to provide strong support for arbitration agreements. But over time, she began to see the use of arbitration agreements as more coercive than consensual, and her opinions started to reflect these concerns. I want to ask you, Professor Vaca, about the pop culture stature of Justice Ginsburg that we referenced earlier. You know, the posters, the lawn signs, the bumper stickers. A couple Halloweens ago, some little children appeared on my doorstep dressed up in justice robes with laced collars and pulled back hair and glasses. It was the first time that I'd seen trick-or-treating costume be based on a Supreme Court justice. When did this start, Professor Vaca, and why? So I think Justice Ginsburg's pop culture status, it, it really started up in the early 2010s after she began reading her dissents from the bench in a handful of cases. And so this, this technique is used when a justice dissents, but when they, they read from the bench when they're trying to express strong dissatisfaction with the majority's opinion. And so she started doing this more frequently in the early 2010s after her dissent in a case called Shelby County, which was a voting rights case, a law student at NYU created a website called the Notorious RBG, which was a playoff of the, the rapper, the Notorious B.I.G. And this, this really resonated with the public and it went viral. And so it, it had the effect of reintroducing Justice Ginsburg to the public in a way that emphasized her 
tremendous contributions to gender equality, both on and off the bench. And I think part of what made it really explode was that, coincidentally, this was also her sort of viral fame on the internet, was reaching its peak during the beginnings of the Me Too movement, which directly captured many of the concerns that RBG had throughout her career. Okay, so kind of a confluence of cultural and judicial and social factors coming together to create that sort of icon image there. Yeah, it really was. And, it, and I, I believe she really enjoyed this kind of pop culture icon status. There were a few interviews where she was asked about it later in her, her life. And she, she always said that she found it uh, very funny. And she commented that she would always, she always had a large supply of notorious RBG t-shirts that she gave out as gifts. <laughs> well, Professor Vaca, regarding her jurisprudence, your specialty, what's most important for our listeners to remember? So I'd say that the, the most important thing to remember about Justice Ginsburg's jurisprudence is that it, it's complex and nuanced, just like Justice Ginsburg herself. You know, she had positive characteristics and she had flaws. She had beliefs that stemmed from her unique lived experiences. And her beliefs about how the law and the various parts of government operate and should operate are really drawn from these, these characteristics, these flaws, these experiences and are really what animated her, her decisions. And so when, when we first started working on the project, we thought we had a decent understanding of why Justice Ginsburg decided cases the way that she did. But as we started to dig a little bit deeper, we realized that there was so much more complexity in her legal analyses. And that was, that was really delightful to discover and one of the things that made putting this book together so much fun. Well, Professor Vaca, thank you very much. This has been really interesting. I learned a lot, and I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks so much, Laura. That's Professor Ryan Vaca. His research and classes at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law focus on intellectual property, copyrights, patent law, trademarks, and judicial administration and reform. Along with Professor Ann Bartow, he's co-editor of the book, The Jurisprudential Legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That concludes this month's episode of The Legal Impact. I'm your host, Laura Kanoy, Director of Community Engagement at the Rudman Center. Our show is recorded, edited, and produced by the Marlon Fitzwater Center for Communication at Franklin Pierce University. Opinions discussed on The Legal Impact do not constitute legal advice or represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Legal Impact.